I went to a marvelous party. Facts. Most people don't even know the facts. The underlying ideas don't have enough depth to last for an entire season. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine. You first, Eric. Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California. It's the Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, the Internet's first live comedy variety show. Featuring special correspondents from the worlds of entertainment, politics, and lousy relationships. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you through the dinnerpartyshow.com with your hosts, New York Times best-selling novelists Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to the February 17th, 2013 livecast of The Dinner Party Show. Tonight, we will not be talking about the history-making filibuster of presidential cabinet nominee Chuck Hagel by closeted lesbian South Carolina Senator Lindsey Lou Graham and the Senate's leading asshole, hypocrite, and whiny old curmudgeon, John I'm Still Pissed Because I Lost the Presidency to a Black Guy, McCain. It is inexcusable for these criminally negligent senators to further abuse the counterproductive and antediluvian rules of the Senate, long overdue for a substantial overhaul, to further their petty political ambitions, grind their childish axes, and clog a slow and overburdened system in the process with this complete waste of the nation's time, not to mention their churlish disrespect for the presidency of our country— but we don't give a shit what happens to self-proclaimed anti-gay, anti-choice, bigot, and all-round asshole Chuck Hagel, so we're not going to talk about it until Chucky apologizes formally, publicly, and privately to Ambassador Hormel, all gay people, and women in general. Also not being talked about on tonight's live cast, the sad fact that failed NBC chief Jeff Zucker, his first triumph as head of ailing cable news network CNN, was to turn a prolonged and stomach-churning cruise ship mishap into a rating gold mine for the ailing news network. We will not be discussing the fact that the man responsible for gutting what was formerly the most respected network on television for high-quality scripted drama used the plight of cruise ship passengers to assert his new status, eroding one of the most trusted names in news. And we will not be weighing in on whether Chris Brown and Rihanna are or are not or should or should not be together. We don't like and don't want to talk about him, and we think she's probably a fool to be keeping time with a man who was convicted of beating her because he did. But we're all do foolish things when we're horny or in love or both without mm-hmm. it being reported on the national news. And in the end, it's none of our business what she does. If he hits her again, we may lock him in a room with Jenny Johnson. But for now, we're not talking about it. Also not being discussed on tonight's live cast, the return of The Walking Dead. Why? Because Eric hates zombies. Boring. And I personally think the show took a giant nosedive since showrunner Frank Darabont left and every other show 
shot involved driving something sharp through a zombie's eye. Congratulations, hardcore fans of the graphic novel. You turned what was once an interesting apocalyptic show about complex, sympathetic characters forced to make desperate choices into a shallow, gruesome slog focused primarily on the characters who literally have no brains. Hmm. Finally, we refuse to discuss Kim's divorce, Beyonce's baby weight, Kate's lack of swimsuit on the cover of the SI Swimsuit Edition, or anyone's outrage other than Melissa's over Rex Reed's rather crassly pointing out the Emperor's outfit. Everything else is on the table tonight on tonight's live cast of The Dinner Party Show. Tonight's Dinner Party Show provocation comes to us from Sister Mary Steve from the Butchalite Sisterhood in Sarasota, Florida. Okay, God, I have just about had it. Why is it that you keep helping out that you should forgive me assholes and keep making life so much harder for the people who are trying to help? If you are God and you do like us, right, then... Please tell me why you keep helping corrupt politicians, unscrupulous financial manipulators, usurious lenders, ten-horn dictators, and soulless religious leaders. There are plenty of people who work hard in the service of what we believe to be your will, love, charity, and the good of mankind. In return for our faith and hard work, you give power, glory, and wealth to sociopaths whose only concern is advancing their own causes at the expense most often of those who can least afford it or protect themselves. Religious zealots in Somalia kill aid workers trying to feed the starving in their own country. Politicians lie, cheat, and fight viciously against efforts to use the obscene wealth and power of the government to help the sick. The working class is paid less for fewer benefits to lower the cost of goods and services to a level they can still afford in a vicious cycle that will have us all living and working at Walmart. Fame and fortune is visited on the vulgar, the untalented, and the vapid. Love graces the lives of the whores, gold diggers, and entitled who take it for granted and use your most sacred gift more for personal gain than as a celebration of life, while the good and decent lead lives of quiet desperation in solitude. And, all the while, wealth and prosperity concentrates into the hands of fewer and fewer here in the world that you created and control. Sorry, so, God... My question is, do we have you confused with someone else? Amen. Well, that was an uplifting little turn of phrase, don't you think? How did we get Linda Lavin to do our provocation this week? Apparently she didn't have anything else to do. She's still alive, right? Yes, she is. I think she's actually doing something on Broadway. That's wonderful. Do you know who is doing something on Broadway? I wish I was in New York. Um, Holland Taylor is going to play... Anne Richards, Richards, Richardson, the governor of it's Texas. A, yeah, they're doing ah. a play about her, like my two, my favorite politician and one of my favorite actresses. The woman who famously said of uh, George Bush Sr., he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. I just saw, it's opening the 7th. I wish I could go. Maybe my billionaire secret admirer will fly me there on his private jet for my birthday Maybe this so. year. Maybe your very own <laughs> Christian Grey. 
for the small price of getting tied up in the back of the jet for five hours. Welcome to the Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice, and tonight's show will be brought to you by the sinus medicine I've been taking for four days now. Oh, my God. thought I was going to have a meltdown before the show. Or this high-octane tea Billy made. I mean, I'm ready to do the Eric Shawquin show over here. Just, uh, you got to get your cane and push me out of my chair and take over. It's happening. I'm all yeah. amped up. All jumped up on cold medicine and tea. We're ready to bring you the Dinner Party Show. It's also unseasonable warm here in Los Angeles. We try not to be an L.A. show, but we are an L.A.-based show, and so when we have nothing else to talk about, we will talk about the weather in L.A. How are we trying not to be an L.A. show? We don't just want to talk about things that are of interest to people in L.A. We are broadcast internationally all over the world through and our streaming And nothing is website. interest to people in L.A., so that, that shouldn't be any different. Yeah, L.A. people are never interested in anything. In anything. It's anything. But we are going to talk about a rather controversial YouTube video which blew up this week called The Women of L.A., which is getting a lot of backlash from people like Eric Shaw Quinn. And it's not a calendar promo. <laughs> it is not. It is a, a satirical music video by a guy whose name I've already forgotten. DJ Rubel, I believe, is his name. <laughs> name gonna... <laughs> named for the, the coughing disorder. <laughs> the son of DJ Whooping. Name for the, it's the German measles, isn't it? Rubella, isn't that the German Rubella, measles? Rubella, yeah, absolutely. Oh, anyway. Of the, anyway, we're also incredibly excited about our oh, guests tonight. Oh, my God, way more than this video. We have David Berenholtz from the American Tea Room. Because we're my... not amped up enough. I know, he's here to bring us more caffeine. He brought me some of my favorite. Favorite tea, which is Silver Needles. Yum. Um, if you're listening to our show live or if you're anywhere near our website currently, there is a discount code just for you guys to use on the American Tea Room uh, website, which sells as gourmet teas and ships them all over the world. Dinner Party Show Insiders. Absolutely. Friends with 20% discount for Dinner Party Show listeners. And if you click through using the ad on our site, uh, we will receive a portion of the sale. It is a great way to support this currently free and fun radio show you're listening to. Right? And our and second guest. Big drum roll. Patricia Nell Warren, who we have been referring to Yay. all week as a legendary author. Because she is. She is, but one of her fans said that that makes it sound like she's not with us anymore, and oh. she very much is. Oh, she's my God, yes, studio. absolutely. This isn't like King Arthur. <laughs> it's not the legend of King Arthur. It's the legend of Patricia Nell Warren and the front runner. Oh, just one of the most important experiences of my life as a young person. Like, mm -hmm. I was discovering whatever being gay was as a kid in Columbia, South Carolina, and I didn't even know there were any other gay people in the world. And right. that book allowed me to connect up with the rest of the world. I can't, I wish I could remember how it wound up in my hands, but it, it let me know it was okay to be me, that I wasn't alone in the world and that it was all right, that there was love and there was life that was possible. 10 million copies sold to date, or at least as of the writing of the bio that we posted. And I didn't Patricia buy all of them, week. but I did my best. But a lot of people did. Patricia says she gets letters from Australia, from uh, countries all over the world, from people who have either been changed by the book or just discovered the book. There's now an ebook edition available at Amazon, which you can also find through our site. So the legend lives on. And also, I think a lot of people on the page and a lot of people in general want to know about the status of the movie adaptation. It's sort of the, the ongoing. ongoing. It's, we've been talking about it most of 
my adult life. Yes, yeah, absolutely. she's our our guest, David from the American Tea Room, hadn't met Patricia before, I don't think, and brought her a gift when yes. he found out she was going to be on the show because she meant something to him too. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're very, very happy to have Patricia here. And she was supposed to be here a couple of weeks ago. She had a little bit of a cold, but she's beaten the crap out of it and looks great. Absolutely. Ready to take us all in arm wrestling competition any minute now. Absolutely. But in the meantime, we have got a report from our newsman, Breck Artery. We're going to go to Breck, and I'm going to inhale some more of this cold medicine. The Eric Chalkwin Show <laughs> continues in a minute. <laughs> but first, Breck Artery. Tonight, Breck Artery of TDPS News is live from the General Dynamics Tank Plant in Lima, Ohio, mythical home of weekly TV musical Glee. Lima, not the tank plant. Breck? This is Breck Artery, live from Lima, Ohio, home state of Speaker of the House of Representatives John Boehner. Behind me, on this manicured industrial campus, billions in your tax dollars are at work building tanks that the Army says they do not want or need. Despite the insistence of the people who actually use tanks, members of the majority party in Congress insist that it's cheaper to keep manufacturing the unwanted tanks than it is to shutter the plant until the demand for tanks rises to meet the supply. With thousands of tanks already in service and thousands more sitting in massive Army Depot tank parking lots around the country, not to mention no credible threat that would necessitate massive tank deployment in defense of our country, it is unclear when or where tank demand on the current scale might be coming from. Still, some in Congress claim that cutting military expenses would reduce our military readiness. If, in fact, we were attacked by the combined forces of China, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Germany, India, Italy, Brazil, South Korea, Australia, Canada, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, Spain, and Israel, spending-wise, we would still be in the lead. And most, if not all of those countries, are our allies. Since the only costs involved in the last attack on this country were for box cutters, airline tickets, and flying lessons, perhaps we could spend less money and less time pissing people off in the first place. If the majority in Congress is in fact worried about the potential jobs lost from military plants and facilities closing and downsizing the military, something their record in the years following the Great Recession does not support, they might want to consider spending to bring the rest of the country into the same century as the equipment in the military's storage facilities. Within a few miles of where I'm standing are hundreds of the estimated 150,000 bridges nationwide that the NTSB deems structurally deficient. While the American Association of Highway Safety Officials assures us that these bridges are safe, it's worth noting that the I-35 bridge in Minneapolis, prior to its fatal collapse into the Mississippi River during rush hour traffic, was also classified as structurally deficient. Perhaps our greatest protection from being involved in a fatal bridge collapse is the fact that roads are too poor to get us there in the first place. Degraded and inadequate, our aging highways are our primary form of transportation, a fact unforeseen by the designers who built them many, many years ago. Today, just the top 10 busiest freeway interchanges cause nearly 1.5 million hours of delays to freight alone, not to mention how much it costs the rest of us. Nearly 5,000 of our dams are rated as deficient. Our mass transportation system is virtually non-existent, and what we have is inadequate and aging. 
Public schools are falling down over our children's increasingly illiterate heads. Our drinking water comes to us through pipes installed during the 19th century. And our electrical grid is so pathetic we can't manage to keep the lights on for the duration of the entire Super Bowl. Yet, we have not slowed tank production since World War II ended and those in Congress can't think of anything for the American worker to do other than not have health insurance, reproductive rights, or work for a defense contractor. If we spent as much each year on education as we do on the military, perhaps we'd have condos on the moon, flying cars, and cold water fusion power plants. Perhaps the real deficit this country faces is one of imagination, or at the very least, leadership. Till next time, this is Breck Artery wishing you good night and good dinner. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. The Dinner Party Show will be the judge of that. Is it a sad statement on my viewing habits that whenever I hear melodic music from the 40s, I feel like I'm about to be murdered by someone in a China doll mask? Sad how? Sad as in I've been... <laughs> that sounds exciting to you, doesn't Eric Jacquin? Who are you, masked murderer? <laughs> I just watched... You watch a steady diet of horror films and thrillers over the years. They start to pervert everything that is intended to be positive and melodic, you know? Okay, yes. If, if the only... If your, your response to actually upbeat things is a negative yeah. sort of... Ironic, right? Yeah, I guess yeah. that... Yeah, but... I thought maybe it was like, I think it would be tragic if somebody was there to kill you. I, <laughs> sad. Oh, it's be so unfortunate. It's such a bore if somebody was here to murder me. <laughs> well, I guess so. I guess so. You have a good point. Okay. I, I didn't make people angry on our Facebook page, but let's just say for the first time. But I'm, it wasn't for want of trying. I'm angry about something that not everyone else is equally angry about, apparently. I uh, posted, and we are going to be discussing this story later in the broadcast, or the live cast, I should say, with Patricia Nell Warren. But there's a lot of controversy this week around the fact that Orson Scott Card, who wrote Ender's Game, um, it has been placed in charge of Superman, the comic book by DC Comics. And... Orson Scott Card, I believe, is a Mormon, which is fine, but he was also a board member for the National Organization for Marriage. Boo. Yes. Uh, he's written some screeds and essays over the years, which I find patently homophobic and borderline absurd, and I take exception to the fact that he's been placed in charge of this iconic superhero. Some people agree with me. Some people, like Anthony Isom, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, don't agree with me and think I should relax a little bit and that he shouldn't be penalized for his personal views. Uh, I would disagree and say that I think views stop being personal when you sit on the board of a national organization like the National Organization for Marriage. Well, but. I would default to what was discussed on Breck Artery's report a couple of weeks ago. It's called Weissatab. And what does that stand for? Um, Eric would you Jacquin. would you say it about a black person? I think right. was the it was a, we were kidding in the spot, but the point is kind of well taken. If he had said those same hideous things about black people in our country, would we be okay with hiring him? I just think there is a there is a discrepancy, if you will, in it's okay to be an asshole bigot about this group of people, but not that group. I just think I am at a place where I have lost patience with offering equal opportunities and comfort to the feelings who want to be bigots. I, I right. just don't care if the bigots are comfortable or not. Here's a direct quote from Orson Scott Card, which he gave an interviewer from Salon.com. I find the comparison between civil rights based on race 
and supposed new rights being granted for what amounts to deviant behavior to be really kind of ridiculous. There is no comparison. A black person does not harm anyone by being black. Gay rights, on the other hand, is a collective delusion that's being attempted. And the idea of, quote, gay marriage, it's hard to find a ridiculous enough comparison. By the way, I'd really hate it if your piece wound up focusing on the old charge that I'm a homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Too late. Yeah, that's sort of my point. I mean, he even sort of makes the point for me. I, I wouldn't say this about black people, but I think it's perfectly okay to say this about Yes, his gay arguments people. seem to be, uh, the foundation of all of his arguments about gay people is that there is really no gay identity in his view, that it is a choice to behave in a certain way and one can choose not to behave that way. And he says gay people do have marriage rights as long as they choose someone of the opposite gender to marry. And what if I said those same things about Mormons? Because that actually really is a choice. <laughs> you know, you actually do choose to be a Mormon. What if I said that was a delusion? Uh -huh. Like, I think I could actually make a better case for that. Absolutely. You know, made up stuff. Yes. Religion is much harder to prove, as I understand it. Yes. Well, Anthony Isom says on our Facebook page, I don't agree with the man's views. Obviously, I'm a gay man myself, but I think to deny him the opportunity to prevent, present his views via his extraordinary talent by working with a renowned comics company on behalf of one of the greatest ever superheroes is nonsensical. Gay or anti-gay, this is still the man who wrote Ender's Game. His career has never been about bashing us. His entire career may not have been about bashing us, but he took some very public positions in a very pu uh, specific public position. I just think, why are we, like, were there no other good writers out there for this job who didn't hate gay people? I, I just, that's always the way I feel about it. Right. Like, it was sort of the point that we made in the, in Breck's report a couple of weeks ago, like, are we going to go offer a job to Trent Lott now? Right. Like, no. Well, it is, it is about where do we draw the line in our culture. You're right. If he had said it about black people, if he had said it about women, which is going to bring us to our next story, how would the reaction have been? Let's just say somebody uses specious nonsense about or, the, or, or plays to a prejudice that women are not as good behind the wheel of a car as men are. And they suggest, you know, limited driving rights for women, you know, like because clearly just look outside. They're not as good a drivers as men. You know, how would people react? There would be absolute outrage. And people would have be reticent to offer the same sort of high-profile positions to those. Because I think it's more than just doing the work. It's about sort of being the face on the work itself. A sp specifically a character like Superman. Right. You know, this is not a dark, edgy, dangerous superhero. Or this something is... that, or a job that's kind of in the back room that nobody would really notice. Right, absolutely. Okay, so women who like YouTube music videos this week. We're very upset, and I'm going to play you a clip, which we have, thanks to Brandon Griffith, our sound genius, hey, Brandon. of the latest from, we believe his name is DJ Rubel, but we've been getting it wrong since the show started. Here's a clip from his new music video, The Women of L.A. Hey you, yes it's true, we will make your balls blue. We're the women of L.A. We ignore because you're poor and you're not poly sure. We're the women of L.A. From Westwood to Brentwood, never would touch your wood. We're the Wow. <laughs> and they think we're bad. Eric, <laughs> care to weigh in? Well, I, you know, 
Polly Shore has become the icon of desirability. I, I think he seems like a nice enough guy, but wow. <laughs> I think Polly Shore has become the icons of guys who do videos on YouTube. I see. Yeah, absolutely. I see. So that he's what girls are going for. Is that what the video is saying? Maybe. I mean, I think what the video is saying essentially is that women in L.A. will not have sex with this guy. And so he's written a music video impugning their motives for not wanting to have sex well, with him. Do you think it's all the women in L.A. or the women that he's describing in this particular the the you know the the Hollywood social climbers with the fake I think that's rack an and the excellent like, point. It, it's it seems like maybe it's a specific group of women in LA. I, the thing that occurred to me when you pointed this video out to me was there was a movie out a couple of years ago called Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss. Yes. Which was kind of the same I had kind of the same reaction. It was a it was a movie about Sean Hayes um played a character who was lusting after uh, the actor's name was uh, Brad Rowe. Brad Rowe, Who was yes. lovely, mm-hmm. but not anything like as talented or as charming or ultimately as successful as Sean Hayes has been. Um, but the, posit- the whole thing about the movie was why wouldn't this hot, wooden, not particularly interesting, but very nice looking mm-hmm. man show interest in Sean Hayes? And I-, I just felt like as I watched, like, why would Sean Hayes be interested in this guy? Why wouldn't he be around looking for other Sean Hayeses? Real peers, yeah. I, I mean, I think something about this video is it, it begins with a couple guys talking about going out to get laid. So they're not exactly going out looking for marriage material. And I think he doesn't come down and say, the reason I don't have a bride or anyone's ever taken me seriously is because women are superficial. But when this guy walks into a bar, this is apparently his experience. He gets dismissed for not being attractive enough, for not being successful enough, blah, 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 blah. And it Fans, as the video but goes on. But in the on. video, he kind of isn't very attractive no, or successful. So, like, not. I was telling my mentor, Cynthia Gellum, used to say to me, if you want to play ball with the Cleveland Indians, you're going to have to wear the uniform. Like, right. if those are the girls you want, you're going to have to show up for it. You're going right. to have to get a nice suit and get a spray tan and spend your days at the gym and the waxing salon or whatever it is that's popular in that circle. But if you don't want to play in that league, then... You know, they're probably not going to invite you to batting practice. Right. But this has become, I like think— Like I know anything about sports. I, yeah, you went full baseball there. Right. Eric. I was like, this has become a little cottage industry of stand-up co- comics getting outraged by the work of other stand-up comics on YouTube. Like, most of the people who condemned this guy in his video were female stand-up comics who went really PC when I guess you could say that a lot of their own work isn't that PC to begin wow. with. Wow. Like, where's the outrage threshold with stand-up comics on one another? You know, it's like, you know, like do glass those girls, houses. Do as those we like girls to say. go after Sarah Silverman? Yeah. I would say maybe her material might be a little more challenging than this. Absolutely. There's a line in which one character singing in the song apparently bemoans the fact that women in LA won't drink because they have to drive, which makes it harder to get in bed with them because they won't be intoxicated. And this stand up comic implied that that was basically a rape reference. And wow. I was like, wow, that, that's a little too far, I think. You know, a little too far. However, there is a joke that they, they say to the guy, you should go to Rage and you could get laid there because, as you know, gay people will just sleep with anyone. Really? doesn't matter yeah, what they look that's like. That's always nice. Yeah, exactly. yeah, we have no standards whatsoever. <laughs> Come to West Hollywood and try to get laid. Go ahead. Yeah. I dare you. Exactly. So where are we coming down on this? We're coming down on the fact that there's a difference between getting laid and actually looking for a partner or a relationship. Oh, and that really? that music video would be much more boring. I, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. We're coming down on the side of let's calm down about crap on YouTube. <laughs> I think that's the side we're coming down on. 
Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, I think we have another word from one. This is a brand new sponsor. Yes, and it's internet related. It is. It's very. It's very internet related. Topical, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Let's like have we a planned listen. It. Very topical. Do you love the sense of connection you get from social media? I can't wait for all of my friends to see this video of me and my dance recital. But do you? hate being connected to people who only want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> Look at this stupid bitch. Stupid dance recital video. I'm going to post a comment. You look like a dumb whore. I hate your whore face. Go do whore things instead of dancing because you suck. Oh my god. Who is this guy? Why are people so mean? We're not quite sure, young lady. What we are sure of is that nice people like you have gone long enough putting up with the kind of hate speech that defines so much of internet communications. That's why we've developed Find a Troll. Wait, what? I said Find a Troll. Find? What do you mean, Utilizing the latest global positioning software made popular by mobile dating apps, Find a Troll uses firewall-busting technology to pinpoint the exact location of the jerk who just verbally abused you by way of an anonymous blog post or a fake profile. Wait, shit, shit, wait, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Then... Find a Troll unleashes a mole that takes control of all the electrical systems and local data networks at the target's exact location. Why is it dark? Ow, my computer's on fire! Help! Everywhere I look, there are blue sparks! Featuring the creative brain power of the Hollywood writers who devised the death scenes in the most recent Final Destination film, Find a Troll creates a literal living nightmare in the immediate vicinity of the internet troll in question, rendering them as powerless and humiliated as you felt when you read their hateful comments. Why is my dishwasher coming towards me? I don't know. Isn't this kind of mean? Don't worry. Find a Troll simultaneously uses an international routing system to place untraceable phone calls to all the local emergency services near the target's location. Calls which significantly increase the target's chances of escaping their home before it becomes a smoking ruin. Yeah, but what about their neighbors? Don't overthink this, young lady. The internet is a jungle. Do you want to be predator or prey? Oh my god, I'll just stop posting stuff online. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I guess you're right. Where do I sign up? Find a troll. Don't let all those hateful comments go unanswered. Who's the whore face now, troll? <laughs> Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Soup's on. And now it's time for astrological advice from Tuan, Queen of the Stars. Hey, Tuan, Queen of the Stars here with the real dirt on what the constellations are up to and how you can read the signs before they read you. 
Well, Scorpio, you may have a stinger, but you're still an insect. Be careful not to get stepped on. This week will be all hurry up and wait. What with the sun in Pisces and Saturn turning retrograde, the pressure will be off without Saturn on your back, but emotions will be running hot. So take your time and take it easy. And no Aries, that does not mean you can tie one on and wait it out in a stupor of cheap wine and tacky sex with Saturn only knows who. We should all try to find creative outlets for our increased Pisces energy and sensitivity as we adopt a patient but steady Saturnine pace. Choose meditation or yoga to answer your yearnings to escape the day-to-day. Seek outlets to express your heightened emotions through painting or writing poetry or fiction and check your caller ID to make sure it isn't Aries trying to suck you into his vortex of lemon line zemas and manhunt.com. You might actually have something to show for the next few weeks if you do. Remember, Aries, we may have no choice about it being Saturnine, but being asinine is entirely up to you. Till next time, this is Twan reminding you to watch out for the stars. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for The Soup, brought to you by your perpetually victimized gay brother. I will have you know that I am writing a play about all of you. The Dinner Party Show. Keep listening if you've got the stomach for it. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And David Berenholtz has joined us in the studio. In the house. David Hello. of the American Tea Room. I'm going to play our little fanfare for you. Oh, how lovely. I didn't know I could fanfare. Right? The Dinner Party Show bad. Oh, it's almost presidential. Right? David, you have been here all of 20 minutes, and you have already noticed that we had a competitor's tea in our pantry area, and so you have delivered... But he's brought an ample supply of replacements. And we'll post this on our YouTube channel later. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't. But we have Kensington, Lapsang Sushong. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay, we have a whole wow. buffet of teas, which are also available for sale through your website, AmericanTeaRoom.com. Am I getting the... You are. Thank you for Absolutely. Plug. And we have a link on our website, thedinnerpartyshow.com, and a discount code for our listeners. Yes, it's always important to save. Absolutely. Okay, so right? first question. Great tea and a great price. How did you get into the world of tea? Well, um, how did I get into the world this of tea? In this coffee-driven society of ours. Actually, I uh, actually have a, a couple of other businesses, but I was in Europe at the time, and I was walking down a street in Paris, and I noticed that they had a lot of beautiful shops and I just walked in one and didn't realize what it was and it was a tea shop. It was kind of completely different than anything I had seen in the states and I thought why don't we have one of those here? So So how was it different? Was it the displays or the setup or It was everything. It was just a, like a visual uh the visual look of it. Uh the smell when you walked in smelled delicious. It was mm-hmm. it was kind of set up almost like a cosmetic store for tea as opposed to your right. traditional grandma's like a perfumery. Old. Absolutely. It was very sophisticated and uh almost non-apologetic that it was selling tea and I right. I I wasn't really a big fan of tea but I just loved the way the store was merchandised. I liked the way that it looked and I said, you know, why isn't there something like that in Los Angeles? That was a little over 10 years ago. So we decided to open up a store like that in Los Angeles. Thank you very much. And how long has the store been open? 10 years. Wow. 
So you homes. really got to work as soon as you got home from Paris. You were like, find me some retail space. It took a year. We we had a lot. Of, we would when we were in when we were looking for retail spaces. People would say to us, "Are you serious? You want to open up a tea store?" And they would literally like say no. Uh, we were <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah, we, we were, every place you know when we would talk to a landlord, they would say a tea store. I've never heard of a tea store, and it was sort of like kind of this uphill battle because no one thought huh. of a tea store. But my whole point was that's right. There is no tea store, so wouldn't it make sense? Right. So a, the demand will be up. But they didn't really know anything, and we found someone that you know kind of understood what we were doing, and he got us a lease in Beverly Hills. It's not so easy to find a, a prime you know piece of real estate. They want. A name brand, or they right. want something that's you know known and and uh, successful before it opens up, uh, and so uh, we, yeah. someone took a chance on us, and uh, we've been very fortunate since then. I think there's a real shift towards tea mm-hmm. in the country. I I, I have I'm a tea drinker, and it has been like I've years of the horrible little stainless steel thing of hot water and the bag of Lipton, you know, when you order tea out. Which, which <laughs> Tell I, them about what happened which in Italy. I'm not Italy. apologizing. The Italians <laughs> are the funniest. Every teapot I received in the entire country that wasn't made of metal um, was broken. They just don't give a crap they, about they weren't, tea. They weren't well, mean about they, it. They, they just couldn't there. get it. They, well, they have espresso, too. And that's what we went on a trip together why to Why would you Italy. go to Italy and not want our Italian coffee? They weren't mean, yeah. but they just didn't understand why we would want tea. Italians are not big tea drinkers. They're not. Other, other and Americans European... haven't been traditionally for a long time either. I guess since that whole thing in the Boston Harbor, we've Ab- been a little off tea. Absolutely, and it's it's, it's been a whole uh, rebirth of tea. It's kind of like the food movement. People have been looking uh, at, at at better, finer quality products. Right, and, and over right. the last decade, if you look even in your just supermarket aisle, there there's been an explosion absolutely. of tea, loose leaf tea, absolutely. tea in bags, absolutely. iced tea, uh, and higher quality teas all around. We have a question for you on our Facebook page from Freddie Espinosa. What is better for you, tea or coffee? Uh, well, generally tea. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm biased, of course, but uh, tea does have polyphenols. Tea does have massive amounts of antioxidants. Right. You generally don't put milk and sugar in tea unless you're British. Um, and so, therefore, it's a lower-calorie beverage. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's generally uh, better for your health, but it, it's a good product. Um, and you but- explained to me when I went to your store for the first time, there's caffeine and then there's teenine, right? They're actually two different chemicals? They are very similarly related, but there is no caffeine in, co- in tea. Caffeine is its, it's Cousin is in coffee. Tianine is actually oh, in tea, huh. and uh, tea actually has three stimulants as opposed to the one stimulant, caffeine, that's in coffee. Oh. But two of the stimulants that are in tea actually slow the body's absorption down of the caffeine of the tianine, actually, mm-hmm. and so you get a more modulated effect. You don't get that huge timed rush. Timed release. It is timed release. Absolutely, it's more like a wave <laughs> as opposed to a jolt. It has antihistamines in it, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I love. Well, good. I yeah. yeah. Getting I off on you. the tea is a big part of what I like about it. <laughs> well, it goes straight to your brain. Isn't that what you told me once? It does. The- it actually re- reacts with your central nervous system. It is actually more of a modulator to your brain. Caffeine in coffee actually reacts more with your body. That's why your heart rate increases. Ah. Sometimes people have reactions with their intestines and bowels when they drink coffee, which is generally not the case with tea. Right. You and don't my brain that. can use all the help it can get. Oh, and you I have much know. better breath with tea uh, than you do with coffee. Sure. 
You know, Dr. Oz actually did a breath test on a recent show. He had people just eat random things, and then you were supposed to guess what. It was not unlike the breath test on <laughs> Honey Boo Boo. That is the um, grossest show on television. Dr. Green Oz. tea gives you worse breath than black tea, was the conclusion of really? the Dr. Oz uh, medical team. That's yeah, interesting. Absolutely. I wouldn't have guessed that. But do that. you know that you can use your tea leftovers? I was just reading this, and I know some of you like cats. Uh, you can use it actually to descent your litter box. Tea? Oh, that's a really good. Wow. But, so when you're done but with it. Your this, cats have soggy tea flavored <laughs> backside. Well, you have to let the tea dry. <laughs> but then I guess. <laughs> Will they eat the tea? My cats already eat everything else that hits the floor, including my feet, so. Well, that really brought the crowd wow. down. Well, it was such a. Well, we were imagining like, oh, they ate your feet. That seems they a little. They just chew everything that goes on that latitude or longitude. Well, I think it's time for an, another installment in our very special special, which we haven't heard from in a while. It's pedestrian of the week, and then we'll be back with David Barinholtz of the American Tea Room. And more fun tea facts. There's a special discount code on our website. You can go straight through that link to the American Tea Room site, and he will ship teas to you wherever you are to dump on your cats. To dump on your foot-eating cats. <laughs> All right, uh, you're listening to The Dinner Party Show, and now here's Pedestrian of the Week. Pedestrian of the Week! It's time once again for The Dinner Party Show's Pedestrian of the Week. The term pedestrian is often used to dismiss something as common or unremarkable, but here in Los Angeles, we know there is nothing commonplace about our pedestrians. So, every now and again, we at the Dinner Party Show like to take a moment to call attention to the special merit in the all-too-easily-overlooked field of street crossing as we observe it in the hurly-burly of traffic here in the city that invented traffic jams and gridlock by dismantling the highly effective mass transit system we already had. That's right. Every Pedestrian of the Week is a shout-out to a real L.A. innovator in this all-too-often pedestrian endeavor. This week, we want to recognize the man with the snowy dreadlocks who, after availing himself of a five-finger discount on the south side of Santa Monica Boulevard, gave us all a lesson in values clarification when he decided to run into oncoming traffic without waiting for the light to change. It was a nail-biter, but... After several near collisions, a symphony of horn blowing and a cascade of choice words shouted out the windows of a number of passing cars and by those he was evading on the south side of the boulevard, our intrepid pedestrian made it to the north side of Santa Monica this time. No idea what was in the wrinkled bag he had tucked under his arm, but we can only hope that it was worth more than his life. Who among us can value our own lives with such accuracy? Our hats are off to you, sir. Here's hoping that you stole a radio or iPod or laptop or some device that will help you find these dinner party show accolades and that you live long enough to hear them. But if it was just a sandwich or a bottle of Mad Dog, here's hoping it was life-changing. Hey, get out of here! We're back at the dinner party show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn and our special guest David Berenholtz of the American Tevangelist. Tea Room. Tevangelist. Yes. What was the other one we thought of during the break? Tevangelist, and there was another Tevangelical one. Tevangelical. Tevangelical. As right. we like to say, we're a tea party that everyone can enjoy. Everyone. Right? An all-inclusive tea party. All-inclusive. Philip Cohen on our Facebook page would like to know what the best quality tea you have is. Well, all of our teas are very high quality. Mm -hmm. However, there are some that are exceptionally rare 
and some of them are actually uh, quite, quite rare. I would probably say the rarest tea that we have is a shade-grown uh, Japanese tea. They build little huts over the uh, tea plants while they're growing, and then they harvest them in the dark. Ooh. Uh, and that would be Yame Gikuro. It's a very, very rare tea, and it's about $500 a pound. Wow. wow. And what does it taste like? Uh, it's slightly green and uh, a little salty. It's got marine notes. It's very light. And uh, like most Japanese teas, some people will say it tastes like kelp or seaweed. I tend to think it sounds a little better than that. But uh, it, it does have a nice marine and, and influence. Christopher was telling me you're a super taster. So I, you have what? Tell us what that means. It, it's both a blessing and a curse. But I can taste virtually everything uh, and very, very intensely. Uh, so it's good for my job because I'm able to discern a lot of tastes and qualities. But at the same time, I literally taste everything. So if a dog does something, blocks away, I can smell it like it's right next door to me. Uh, and, but at the same time, if something smells really intense, it's really it's intense. It's a really good thing. <laughs> it is. Wow. So it's a plus and a minus. Does it affect your sense of smell? It does. Taste and smell are, are very, very closely They're kind related. They're the same thing. And uh, I actually was in a, uh, a, a test, uh, a grouping uh, that they did at, at UCLA for people that were super tasters. Uh, and it turns out that there's it's about one-sixteenth of a percent of people have this genetic ability. It's a, it's a gene uh, that actually uh, uh, you have that allows you to be able to taste almost in color in a certain way, whereas most people will taste in, in black and white. Interesting. Do you travel the world super tasting tea? I mean, yes. how do you build your inventory? You must, right? I, I do travel. With tra I travel extensively from the end of April to almost the middle of June, which is the prime tea tasting mm -hmm. uh, harvest season. Oh, wow, I see a fun. TNT series here, the <laughs> super taster. Absolutely. You solve crimes throughout Asia because you can smell everything. No, actually, in Asia, actually, sometimes is a, is a bit of a problem going there. <laughs> <laughs> so much to smell. A so lot. much to smell in the whole I world. I mean, even New York is sometimes oh, a problem. Oh, I would think yeah. New York would be really, yeah, New York is a challenge. Especially in the people. summer when it's hot. We Ugh. used to joke around and say, what could be worse than being in a Chinese laundry in a subway uh, in New York City when it's 105 degrees? Absolutely. Or well, in, in West Hollywood, all you smell is sort of weed and bergamot, right? <laughs> you know, that's sort of scented candles and marijuana. Wafty and wafting jasmine when it's right. uh, <laughs> warm in the summer. <laughs> and then the Santa Ana winds carrying every dead animal in the desert on their back. Or whatever, whatever's on fire in <laughs> San Bernardino. Charred. Absolutely. So the American Tea Room is your shop and most of the experience of visiting your shop is smelling stuff. You have samples out of the individual teas in sort of little glass yeah, it's like a little Tubes. perfumery. And, yeah. And mostly when people come in, they're usually blown away. They'll be, oh, my God, this smells fabulous. And then the next comment is, is that licorice? I don't know why everyone thinks everything smells like licorice. <laughs> we don't have anything that has licorice in the store, but everyone assumes that the smell in the store is licorice. So we Actually, just, Beverly we, Hills is spraying licorice <laughs> scent on all of their right. side streets now. It's a new right. thing. It's Anise. She wanders <laughs> the streets. <laughs> thinking up the place. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, as we've said before, we have a link on our website to, to your website, the American Tea Room, and there's a discount code that you very generously offered our listeners, which is twenty percent off. Very much. Can we it's use seventy percent off everything in the <laughs> Almost, there, there is free shipping over fifty dollars, and we <laughs> absolutely, which is always what I'm shooting for. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming out today and for it's bringing a all this wonderful tea. We're gonna, thank you. Eric so much. and I are so fighting over these bags of teas absolutely. in the middle of the table. We're There'll gonna be. Fight on YouTube. Well, Darren, you can share them with all of your future guests so they will be uh, illuminated as to the finer uh, 
experiences of tea. Absolutely. And we'll replace all of our competitors' tea with your tea immediately. I will check next week. All right, then. Well, now it's time for another live report from Miss Jonelle Sams, our relationship expert, and then we will be back with Patricia Nell Warren. Thanks, David. Thank you. It's time once again for the Dinner Party Show's Homemade Relationship Advice with Jonelle Sams. Hi, this is Jonelle Sams with Homemade Relationship Advice. If you have a relationship question, you can send it to me care of the Dinner Party Show's Facebook fan page or at Jonelle at thedinnerpartyshow.com. Hope everyone survived Valentine's Day. I swan special times and holidays can be challenging for our relationships. But, more often than not, the wagon of love breaks under the baggage of life. Big challenges come and go, but it's the little day-to-day stuff that will take you down. Our listener this week writes, Dear Jonelle, I love my husband, but I am not as crazy about his socks, or his towels, or his empty food containers, or his dirty dishes, or his hair in the drain of my bathtub. She goes on like that for a while. You get the idea. Anyways, she eventually asks, Jonelle, I love taking care of my man, but I would love it if he'd do more of his share around the house, or any of his share around the house, for that matter. But when I ask, I feel like a nag, and he doesn't usually mind telling me I sound like one, too. How can I get my husband to do his share and keep the peace? Signed, Foundrin on Rocky Chores. Well, Rocky, this is an easy one. You can't. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but you can either pick up his socks or nag your husband about doing it. If it's any consolation, if your husband was the sort of person to pick up his socks, you probably wouldn't be the sort of person to care. It's kind of a relationship law. Like, one person in the relationship is always freezing, and the other one always wants the air conditioner set on escapades. If one of you is neat, the other one really won't care. It makes sense when you think about it. How much more challenging would it be for you if your husband offered you a lecture on how to put socks away better? If you were both do-the-chores kind of people, then you'd just fight about how to do the chores rather than doing them. What attracts us to the people we choose is the differences, not the similarities. I'm very lucky. My Merle and I have been married for 22 blissful years, and we have found our way through the million little compromises that can make a relationship worth or choke the life out of it. I do have to pick up after Merle from time to time, but I don't have to go down to that barber shop every day and cut hair, so it all comes out in the wash. Honestly, between Barbarin and all the time that Merle spends with his best friend in the whole world, Olsen Lee Pew, Merle is hardly around here enough to mess up this house. Why, it's been so long since we were in some of these rooms that I have had them completely sealed in plastic. When the sun catches the dust beams just right, it's like living in a snow globe. My cousin Joella, on the other hand, was not nearly so lucky. Between her husband and all his buddies, she might just as well throw some sawdust down on the floor and charge extra for table service. Their place reminds me of that roadhouse in the Patrick Swayze movie. She fought that losing battle till I thought they were going to have to put chain link down the middle of the house to keep them from going at each other with broken beer bottles. And then... One day, Joella was so tired from fighting and arguing and trying to hold the line between their three-bedroom ranch house and the dewdrop in that she just sat down at the table and poured herself one of the boiler makers that her husband was having with his friends while they watched the game. Well, before the night was over, Joella was eating takeout pizza over a torn-off piece of the box. 
giving odds on the Panthers, and taking on all comers in a standing arm wrestling challenge at her kitchen table that she has not lost to this day. That magic night, it was as though Joella discovered her true self and her capacity for Jack Daniels. Today, the health department is the only ones with serious questions about that house of theirs, but the two of them have lived happily ever after, unless the Cowboys are playing the Saints and then it's Katie bar the door. But my point here, Rocky, is that it's easier to learn to live with the man you actually married than it is to change the husband you've got into the man you'd originally hoped for. Chances are, your husband is doing a lot of the same compromising where you're concerned, too. Till next time, I'm Jonelle Sams with Homemade Relationship Advice. If you have relationship questions, write to Jonelle Care of The Dinner Party Show Facebook page or to Jonelle at thedinnerpartyshow.com. Why do you think they call it settling down? The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. The dish is served. with the Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating absolutely everything about the human body that doesn't make a disgusting sound, we bring you our brand new fitness expert, Jason Bitters, heterosexual physical trainer. What's up, everyone? I'm Jason Bitters, fitness expert dedicated to helping you maximize your physical potential as soon as you stop bitching about that thing your friend said to you this weekend that I'm supposed to get upset about, too. Okay, Let's get some things clear right up front so we can focus on your fitness goals. I do not want to be an actor or a model. I am here to get people fit. Period. Exclamation point. I have a degree in this stuff, guys. All right? A degree in kinesiology from Cal State Northridge. I am a physical trainer. Please note that I did not say massage therapist, erotic or non. Please note that I did not say psychological therapist. So are we clear? Not an actor, not a model, not a massage therapist, erotic or non, and not a head shrinker. Okay? Cool. So, today's focus, strengthening your core, a great long-term strategy for preventing both chronic lower back pain and serious back injuries later in life. A very important fitness goal for people who live a sedentary lifestyle. If you're sitting at a desk all day, slouching in front of a computer, core strengthening is going to be absolutely key. So we're going to be focusing on basic sit-ups and crunches that can be done anytime, anywhere, as long as you have adequate floor space and some sort of cushion or pad underneath you. The bicycle. Okay. Lying on your back. Lace your fingers behind your head. Bring your knees up and bring one elbow toward the opposite knee as you bring it towards your head while extending the other leg out. These exercises are really effective when you stop asking me if I have ever experimented with another guy. Because the answer is going to be the same as the last 10 or 20 times you asked me, all right? The answer is no, by the way. And no, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just not that way, okay? So we want to do 20 bicycles on each side. So that's 40 total. And without a rest period, we're going to go right into crunches. Those are going to involve bent legs on the floor in front of you and reaching in between your knees with both hands out. 
arms straight out until you feel the abs contract, and then you ease back down again, making sure to get some level of stretch in the abs as you straighten. Okay, key ingredient here to this exercise, avoid complaining to me about your boyfriend, because the only way your boyfriend can keep you from doing sit-ups is if he's fucking sitting on you. And if he was doing more of that, maybe you guys wouldn't have such relationship problems, but I'm not going to say that because I don't want to get into it, and it's not because I'm not okay with it, but because I don't want to have another, maybe a third would make things better talk with you because you just need to work out. Okay, so from crunches, we go right into straight leg sit-ups, which are basic and just like they sound, okay? So after you do 10 of those, we're going to go right into hip-ups, which have you roll right onto your back, bring your knees almost to your chest, and then try to straighten your legs briefly into the air above you with a slight straight extension of both legs in between each rep. Key ingredient to this exercise, do not giggle and make faces at me because your butt is in the air for most of it, okay? All right. Having established these basics, we're just going to do them over and over again until you stop being weird. Okay, I'm going to sit here and text my girlfriend, and no, we have not made a sex tape, and we're not going to, okay? So once you start to look like you're going to throw up, I'll let you stop, and then I'll end the session. And it'll be clear I want to leave, but you'll sort of want to hang out and chat so your friends who are coming into the gym because they just got off work can see you talking to me. Then for like the hundredth time, you'll ask me if I want to bartend at one of your pool parties, and I'll tell you I don't know how to bartend. The most complicated drink I have is foreign beer. And you'll be like, Oh, all you have to do is take your shirt off and pour shots, Jason, and I'll laugh, even though I'm kind of sick of this whole game, and of course I'll thank you for the offer so I can keep you as a client. And then you'll start to talk to me about your friend who directs gay porn, and I'll pretend to be, like, culturally curious so you don't accuse me of being a homophobe, even as you mentioned over and over again. How much cash gay porn actors supposedly make? Sure, whatever. And then, to satisfy you, I'll text you some photos of me and nothing but my my bike shorts that you can show to your friends in the locker room after we finally finish our session 20 minutes later. I hope these core strengthening exercises improve your own fitness regimen, but more importantly, I hope I've given you an education in the reality of physical training in West Hollywood. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for The Dish, brought to you by your mother, Mistress of Guilt. <sighs> That's okay. Go ahead and step on my foot. Why would I need to walk anywhere? I haven't been anyplace nice in years. The Dinner Party Show. Keep listening if you've got the stomach for it. And we're back. We're back and very excited. We have a very special guest. It's Patricia Del Warren in the guest chair. Welcome to the dinner party show. (laughs) We are so happy to have you. Thank you, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excited children. We have plied you with Eric Shaw Quinn's homemade cookies and our special blend of tea as well. And coffee. And uh, we've given you coffee too. It works. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) There's champagne out there too. You can just go out all over the space. We'll do the champagne after the show. On the way out. Absolutely. Absolutely. You had a handsome escort drive you tonight, so you don't have to worry about driving home. You have as much champagne as you want. Yes. I have to say, out of all the guests we've had on the show, the excitement on our Facebook page about your arrival has been pretty intense. Obviously, you have, your work has touched a lot of lives. Absolutely. 
absolutely so Least important Least of all, Eric to Shaw Quinn's. So He's getting misty in that right now. Like, it's one of those things. It's just, it meant so much to me that the front runner literally reached across the world and took my hand and said, it's okay, at a time in my life when I didn't have anybody else. I, I wish I could remember how I wound up reading that book. I don't know how it wound up in my hands, but somehow there you were. It, it changed me and I, I think encouraged me to be a writer, that telling a story could really? make that big a wow. difference in somebody's life. It really, I cannot say enough about how important you well, are. thank you. And thank have you. been to me. And I, I know to a lot of people that are listening tonight <clears throat> and will be listening next I, week absolutely. if they download the show. I mean, this is not to make you to your own horn, but this is something that you hear a lot. I mean, there was not another novel out at that time like yours, was there? Well, I was working at the Reader's Digest at that time, and I was in the book department. And my job was to everybody in the book department read hundreds of books a year to help the Reader's Digest decide what they were going to condense. And it was all nonfiction. And, uh, <clears throat> but we were also aware, because we read the trades, of what was coming out in fiction. And it really occurred to me that there were just – there were books about the subject out there, but where were the love stories? Hmm. Right, and they were always kind of grim and ended sadly, and and you know not to I mean they're incredibly talented writers out there, but but the country had just not been open to hearing love stories, and I remember um, Eric Siegel's novel Love Story, which was fairly popular back in those fairly days. Fairly popular. <laughs> <laughs> the Reader's Digest condensed it. You know, how is it possible to condense that? It was a leaflet to begin I'll with. I'll tell you what, they condensed it by taking out all the four-letter words. Oh, oh, this is a true story, and so how much it weight did that ca came, came out in the condensed book club. The condensed version and all the wonderful, you know, older women who were kind of the mainstay of the of the Digest readership uh -huh. thought, oh, the Digest is recommending this book. And so they ran out and they bought the regular, the hardcover, the regular edition to give to their children for Christmas. And that was when they became aware of, of the language. <laughs> and a lot of these people wrote in and canceled their subscriptions. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> Scandal at the Reader's now and Digest. Then the Digest tried to put their toe in the water, you know, and their readers always kind of slapped them down. But that was one of the things that really made me decide to write the story the way it did, along with being involved in athletics in the long-distance running scene and being in the AAU myself and being in kind of— I didn't of, realize that. I didn't know that you would actually were a runner. Yeah, I got involved well, in— Well, certainly it shows. <laughs> Long-distance running was kind of the first of the emerging extreme sports. I mean, people thought you were crazy to want to run in a marathon, and there the, were just a handful of crazy kind of men that, that did that, well, 26.2 miles. Even Prefontaine didn't run that far. Right. You know? He was middle distance, and I got involved in this. And at the time, the issue was around the women's rules. Women were only allowed to run two and a half miles oh. at the time. We would fall over dead. You know, or our, <laughs> our uteruses like would a, fall out like on the road. <laughs> and so we were trying to get the rules changed and get the same distances as the men. I so can't. I was involved in all of the politics. And I was still in the closet myself. At that, I was in my you know late 20s rounding 30 at that time, and, and being there, I began to become aware of that there were people like me who were also still in the closet. And the thought occurred to me at a certain point, gosh, nobody has ever written about this. Mm. 
No, I mean, the picture of a gay athlete, even now, I think is challenging. We had the the idiot from San, the San Francisco football team being sort of a fool about talking about... Can't have no homos in the locker room. Right. Particularly right. In, the, in the team sports where there's that locker room phantom menace that right. they always invoke. Exactly. You know? Because we're right. completely unable to control ourselves and he's so amazing. Yeah, right. Anyway, the point being, like, gay athletes were, even now, are not the most common. It, it isn't something that, that people think of. No, it, it, it's beginning to happen. I mean, it's little well, it's obviously little been happening little, right along. Little Hello. by little. It, you know, I mean, I think we'll get there. The, the tough thing has been team sports. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you have uh, the pressures of the uh, the owners, the team owners, the corporate sponsors, the fans, the everybody, you know. And and uh, just not not to mention your teammates and and about anything. And that silly belief that so long informed the "don't ask, don't tell" mentality of that somehow it would. What, what's the the, the 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 term the military used to say the group order U- or unit unit, unit morale cohesion. unit cohesion unit cohesion, unit cohesion. Unit cohesion. Yeah. I think it's that same sort of insane per- perception that somehow knowing that one of your teammates on your football team is gay would prevent you from playing football as well. Exactly. That's the delusional part for Mr. Scott well, Carr. I have to say, I think that what, what is so offensive about that is that it posits one of two ridiculous scenarios. One, that they're going to not take no for an answer and literally force themselves on you in the locker room. And the other <laughs> is that you, just... as a supposedly heterosexual person, won't be able to resist the temptation of someone of the same gender who you know to be homosexual right. in your vicinity. So what does that say one that all gay people are rapists or two that you're bisexual and need to talk to somebody mm-hmm. about it or maybe just gay <laughs> maybe <laughs> or, so or that you as a heterosexual are so easily tempted that you could be uh, you could be drawn to abandon your yes. positioning as a heterosexual well, I think all of that goes back to the notion that it's a choice right you know I always say to people mm-hmm. you know and when did you decide to be heterosexual right mm-hmm. you know like I It isn't like I sat down and thought one day, hmm, I wonder what – well, let's look at the options. Let's get the literature and leaf Mm -hmm. through and see which is the most – nobody – actually, it's not a choice. In fact, for the majority of people, if it were a choice, they would have chosen the far more easier and acceptable Mm -hmm. option. Certainly, (laughs) if I was making the choice based on convenience. Right. Well, you know, a lot of people in my generation, certainly a lot of women, you know, I was born in 1936, so I'm not even – I'm a pre-boomer. And I never heard the word gay or lesbian until I was in college. I had I had no idea, mm. and I never had uh, teachers or anybody make a pass at me when I was young. Uh, but I, somehow you know, and and mm. you become yeah. it. It comes to you through your own spirit, and mm-hmm. you don't make a decision. You just little by little you begin to figure out that it's there, and then what do you wants do? What the so heart wants. I tried very hard to fit in. Mm-hmm. I did the thing that. A lot of women in my generation did. They got married, and they tried really hard. I gave it 16 years. Mm. I gave it a hell of a try. Mm-hmm. You know? That's quite a try. You no. Know? But, yeah, if you weren't being presented with any other viable alternatives, mm-hmm. That's right. what were you to do? Right. Absolutely. We're going to have a brief word from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Patricia, who is with us for the rest of the show. So we'll have plenty of time to talk to her and about And post any questions you might want to ask Absolutely. Patricia on the Facebook page, and we'll try and get to them. Post your questions on the Facebook page, and also we understand you have some opinions about Orson Scott Card as well, uh, who we spoke about oh, at the yes. top of the broadcast. So yes. we'll be back after this brief word from one of our sponsors. In the magical kingdom of Tarsus, a happy porcine family makes their way to market. 
Come, my darlings, let us to market, for the day is bright and the cupboard is bare. But not all could make the journey, no matter how merry, as plague threatened the plantar region. I'm staying home. There's talk of fungus coming down from the metatarsals, and I'm too weak to chance it after that recent blow I took at Sharp Corner. A sage decision, my brother. You keep the home fire burning, and we'll bring you back some of that mycotin spice that you favor. Aye, you're a good piggy, you are. And thank you for saying so, brother Second Toe. But every family faces conflict, even when united in the most joyous of tasks. I'll have roast beef, I will. I'll have none of it. Meat is murder. It isn't. It is. It isn't. It is. My darling, so close in everything you two are. What tumult's this? I tell you it is. Murder it is. I hope somebody drops a hammer on you. <gasps> and in the midst of the conflict, tragedy. Wee, wee, wee. Where's everyone gone? Have they left without me? Did they leave me here at market? Son of a bitch, what kind of piggies are these? One little piggy left at market on his own to find his way. Wee, wee, wee. He cried all the way home. Will the little piggy find his way? Where can they be? They can't have gone more than a foot. Will the others miss him before it's too late? It is murder, I tell you it is. I'll shut it to both of you, or this is the last time I take you to market. Hey, where's little Shrimpy? Will the studios continue their illiterate journey through the entire fairy tale and Mother Goose canon because all the development executives quit reading as soon as they had to do it for themselves? This spring, take a magical voyage to Tarsus for the tragic, uplifting, and 3D story of five little piggies and their journey all the way home. And we're back with Patricia well, Del Warren. I can't wait to see that one. Wee, wee, wee. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a fairy tale about right. feet. Yes. A, re a real toe tapper. <laughs> a real toe tapper. We have a lot of people on the Facebook page responding to our previous segment. Jim Rogers says, the heart wants what the heart wants, and there's not a whole lot the rest of you can do about it. So um, sit down, shut up, and enjoy the ride. <laughs> Freddie Espinoza uh, really reacted to uh, positively to your explanation of sexual orientation, Patricia, which is somehow you know it comes to you through your own spirit and a lot of other thoughts along those lines. We're back with Patricia Nell Warren, right. author of The Front Runner. Eric Quinn is still here as An well. inspiration to so many people throughout the world. It's really an honor to have you here tonight. Uh, it's great to be here, and I'm, I love hearing from people all over the world. That's one of the fun things about Facebook. Yes. Isn't it? You know, we can you can knock Facebook, but there's the positive things. I love hearing from I hear from people everywhere. It's I just cherish I cherish ever. your status updates. You write the most eloquent status updates of, not about the weather. That's going to sound demeaning when I say it that way, but about the about the sort of climate and the environment around where you live in Glendale. You talk about the the temperature and and you talk about it sort of from a rancher's perspective in connection mm -hmm. to the environment. You you grew up on a ranch, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. First 21 years of my life, I was was all about cows. You know? Right. <laughs> cows put me through school. Cows fed us and But you know, writing for Facebook is like it's 
challenge because you have to be brief. It's like writing haikus. Mm. Yes, I think that's a good that's a good analogy, yeah. right? right? Capturing a thought, but in a small enough space because people are breezing by, but yeah. staying posted with people, and as you as you say, being able to be in touch with people all over the planet with just beep. It's amazing, and it's instantaneous. There is a, st- a study I read about somewhere where it said that the, there was a belief that the more digital our culture became, the less we were going to travel. And the airline industry was actually concerned about the explosion of social media because people were connecting in that way. But what they found is that social media increased the number of trips people wanted to take because it increased the number of people they wanted to see and visit and connect with. And their yeah. interest. Yeah. One of the things, one of the challenges, I think, to being a writer, I'm I'm an actor who writes, so I'm a very sort of interactive kind of in my orientation to the world. And you write your story and then it's out there. I love being able to pause and think maybe somebody somewhere is laughing because of something that I'm reading or I've written or they're crying or it's touching them or it's moving yeah, them and or whatever. Yeah, and all of a sudden, the light internet, pops up. Bam, you know? there they are. Yeah. They can tell me immediately how they're feeling even as we're going through the show. They're telling me about stuff that I've written for the show. Absolutely. I love it. For instance, right now we have a question from a writer named Anne Rice. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of her. She wanted to know if you've ever read Mary Renault and if you had any oh. thoughts on her work and on her writing. Well, Mary Renault, now this is interesting little loop back to the Reader's Digest again because she was very popular with the Reader's Digest readers. Really? Yes. Wow. Last of the Wine yes. came out in a Reader's well, Digest I don't remember form? exactly which titles, but they did publish several of them. And uh, Racy. Yes, and I have read, uh, you know, I have read, I've read The Last of the Wine. Oh, my favorite. Uh, the Persian Boy. Ah, very racy. You know? Very racy, and uh, it it was uh, interesting to see the the magazine, the company try to put their toe in the water carefully because they knew That's first of all, pretty big. They knew they had gay people on the staff. I was the first one ever to come out there publicly. Mm. Really, and, yeah, what was that like? It was interesting because this would have happened in the, in the spring of 1974 when the front runner finally came out, <clears throat> but actually. People on the staff had known that the book was coming out, and they had already seen my name on the forthcoming list from William Morrow and, oh, Patricia L. Warren. Well, there aren't very many of those people with that name in the world. That has to be our Patricia L. Warren. So somebody came around to ask me, is this true? Is this your book? And I said, yes. And then then shortly after the book was published, I was interviewed uh, by the, um, the New York Post, Hmm. And I was asked of the question, and I said yes. Because how could you not? So that ask? was official. Wow! So and that was your coming out. That was, was to my the coming New York out. Post. But That's here's the brave. funny thing: prior, a couple of years prior to that, we had had one of the great big women's rights lawsuits. There were uh, Reader's Digest in, in the media. Oh. There was like uh, the New York Times was sued, uh, Time Inc was sued. Everybody was being sued in the media over uh, women's rights. And we had a group of women at the Reader's Digest who had filed charges against the company uh, under, under – it was a federal, federal district court case. And I was one of the plaintiffs. And they couldn't have been more angry at me at that point. Hmm. And then all of a sudden on top of that, I come out. And they had already were so irritated at me that they just decided I guess to let it pass. 
and nobody said anything, and I wasn't fired. And uh, after the book got on the New York Times bestseller list, they actually ran an article about it in the company magazine. Wow. Uh, go figure. Right. See? So uh, th- th- this is like all part success. of the whole question of answering the question about Mary Renault. You know? they, they tried. They really mm. did. I guess it began in a very small way. I, it amazes me. What was it? It was 74. Was it 74 when the AMA said it's not we, we're not actually insane? I They declassified homosexuality as a mental illness in 74 or 72? 73 maybe. I, I think was it was the early 70s. Yeah, it was a little it? bit before that. But, okay. But the distance that we have traveled in that length of time you know, I, there's still a long way to go, and oh I'm yeah. not saying it's all done, but but it has been in my lifetime, and I'm not, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not. I wasn't born yesterday, but I'm also sure. not a hundred. I'm not the oldest living Confederate widow either, um, though I still look like her. Um, <laughs> Just from that one angle, when Becca choose right, from when that Becca chair, me from that chair over there. Yeah. But but a lot has changed since. The front runner came out since the AMA made that decision, since Reader's Digest put their toe in the water, since those little things right. that meant so much over – they accrued over time into where we are today, which – I God, I, is this going to be the year that Doma falls? God, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Well, we're going to be back in a few minutes with Patricia Noel Warren. She's going to be here for the dessert portion of the evening, which is a very long, uninterrupted interview where we'll and talk about cookies. all sorts of things. But for now, we're going to debut two new special correspondents, Lyle and Kyle. Well, I don't know about special. I think they're pretty special. <laughs> uh, bear with us. We'll be back with Patricia Noel Warren here at the Dinner Party Show. Now, as part of the Dinner Party Show's commitment to celebrating spiritual traditions and religious faiths from all around the world, we bring you our first visit from two very special young men from Poison Creek, a beautiful town somewhere in the deep, 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 deep south. Their names are Lyle Johnson and Kyle DeWitt, but we like to call them Two Gay Christians. Good evening, y'all, and we hope y'all are having a blessed weekend. I'm Lyle Johnson. And I'm Kyle DeWitt. Peace be with you and also with the lovely outfit you've got on. This old thing, why, it's just a polo shirt and some jeans. I'm actually talking to the gentleman in the booth with the fancy Star Trek sweater. Oh, okay. Well, we'd like to thank Christopher and Eric for inviting us to join their special dinner party so we could talk about the party we have every Sunday morning at the First Assembly of Peace and Light and Love and Acceptance, Uh otherwise known as the former Smoothie King on Paper Mill Road. But we put a lot of work into it and turned it into an honest-to-God temple of God. Yeah, some of us did, and some of us just sort of stood in the back and pointed at where they wanted things to go. Well... As Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Mm -hmm. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Yes, and it also goes on to say, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Especially when he's hanging a light fixture he didn't approve of much in the first place. I don't think Ecclesiastes says a single thing about light fixtures, silly Willie. (laughs) It also doesn't say anything about how you're going to lift me up when I fall if you're 
you're standing way in the back just watching me work. I think it's time to talk about our church hats. I think it's time to talk about how the church hat contest kind of played out rather quickly and wasn't a very good idea to begin with, given that there are only so many ways you could recreate the Annunciation on a straw hat with a Barbie doll and some crepe paper. <laughs> I think it's time to talk about how there are other praiseworthy moments from Scripture besides the Annunciation. But first, a lesson in forgiveness. Indeed. This lesson centers on a newer member of our congregation, Mr. Forrest Dirksen, uh, who was maybe a little too new to us to be placed in charge of concessions, even if he was brought to us by one of our oldest and most loyal members, Mr. Troy Parkerson. Oldest. often brings us young, handsome men who are new to Poison Creek and to whom he is often lending a hand. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunately, a great many of them have trouble paying attention to Miss Immaculate Concepcion's sermons. And unfortunately, many of the older and less physically attractive members of our congregation spread rumors about these young men and use various apps on their smartphones to make it sound like these young men are snoring during the sermon. Indeed. Miss Immaculate Concepcion is not only our pastress extraordinaire, she is also the lead MC at our local men's watering hole, Slippery Seat. But thanks to the miracle of Visine and Adderall, she's able to work a late-night shift and then lead our services every Sunday morning. Praise be. She is truly a miracle, that Miss Concepcione. Indeed. Sometimes she just goes on and on and on. But back to Mr. Forrest Dirksen. Yes. You see, a few Sundays ago, Forrest decided it would be appropriate to serve orange juice, coffee, and happy cream donuts dressed in an outfit which apparently tested everything everyone's personal definitions of loving and inclusive and all the other welcoming words we have painted on our frosted glass door. Yes, because while we go to great lengths to emphasize that we are not your mother's church, there are some of us who don't find Daisy Dukes and a tattered tube top, Tank top. tube top oh. to be appropriate attire at anyone's church. Yes, there was a great upset among those of us who couldn't mind their own business and leave Mr. Dirksen alone. And and they were met with an even greater upset among those who would rather spend their Sunday mornings focusing on Mr. Durkin's musculature instead of the word of the Lord. Lord. So we turned, as always, to scripture. But after several brunches at Shoney's, many sharply worded Facebook messages and wall postings and some unfortunate voicemails, we failed to uncover a passage in the good book which sufficiently addressed everyone's feelings on this sensitive issue. So, as always, Lyle turned to a different source. Different, perhaps, but one of my own personal messengers of the Word of Christ as I see it revealed in his works all around me. Praise a be. woman whose persona is so triumphant that just the mention of her name brings a holy shudder to my entire person. All right, now, keep it together, sweetheart. And that messenger of the Lord is... Miss Reba McIntyre. Oh, Lord, here we go. I fell to my knees in reverence and adoration and combed through the entire Reba McIntyre songbook, most of which I have committed to memory and after hours most of prayer, of I came across a passage which was divinely suited to our predicament. Every time I turn the conversation to something deeper than the weather, I can feel you always shutting down. And when I need an explanation for the silence, you just tell me you don't want to talk about it now. What you're not saying is coming in loud and clear. We're at a crossroads here.
In other words, he thought we should just ask Forrest Dirksen why he had dressed like that for charge. So we did. And as it turns out, Forrest had not experienced the failure of good judgment we had all feared. You see, he had not specifically selected that tawdry outfit to wear to church. He simply hadn't had time to change from the night before. <laughs> I hate when the, as John 1-7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Yes, and the light apparently went on for Mr. Troy Parkerson because he found out Forrest had stayed out all night and that was the last time any one of us saw Forrest again. Oh dear. Now Miss Immaculate Concepcion says after Mr. Parkerson took away Forrest's truck he moved out to Los Angeles to try some of that nude acting he was always talking about. But the lesson in compassion, tolerance, and understanding was not lost on any uh -huh. of us. And that's a good thing because next Mr. Parkerson brought a very large young man with him who asked us to call him Tiny Tim, even though he was 6'5", <laughs> and then refused to put his phone away during the musical performance. Which was very upsetting for all of us because Lyle was the one performing the song by none other than... Miss Reba McIntyre. Oh, Lord, you guessed it. Well, that's all we have for you fine folks today. I'm Lyle Johnson. And I'm Kyle DeWitt. Peace be with you. And with everyone you want to strangle. See y'all soon. Stop by our church. Just turn left after USA Printing and ignore the no parking signs next to the dumpster. They're a few years old and we don't know who's supposed to take them down. Two snaps for Jesus. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for dessert. Brought to you by your sister's new husband who's had way too much wine. I mean, everybody's cheated at least once, right? I, I, I mean, am I right? The Dinner Party Show. Keep listening if you've got the stomach for it. <laughs> Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Derek Shaw Quinn. Hi, and our wonderful, very, very, very special guest, Patricia Nell Warren. So... Earlier in the show, we were talking about this controversy around Orson Scott Card, who is, I would describe him as a pretty public homophobe, being placed in charge of Superman, the comic book, at DC Comics. I just thought maybe this might be something you would have an opinion about. You know, call me crazy. <laughs> well, starting with the fact that my brother and I used to read Superman comics when right. we were kids. We literally would walk into town from the ranch. How far was that? With a, Well, about a quarter of a mile, actually, from the ranch headquarters into town. With Brisk. a quarter That's in your pocket, block. you could buy a couple of comic books for a quarter. Remember? And get a nickel change and buy some candy with the nickel. And so we would, you know, so I've been, haven't read a lot of Supermar uh, Superman recently. But when I read his comments on in his response to all of this, the thing that really struck me is he goes he goes back to this nonsensical idea of what civil rights is. And okay, we have to allow, you know, black people because you can't change the color of your skin. Yeah, that's and you lovely. can't hide. Thanks. And and other than that, there is no other such thing as real civil rights, is really what he's saying. And that is complete baloney. Because civil rights is – there's a lot of different groups of people who need to have human rights protected that you're not always the same thing all your life. 
I mean, we have rights for children. You're not a child all your life. We have rights for the disabled, which is the minority for the we can all join at any moment in time. You, you have know? rights for the elderly. I mean, mm-hmm. as of 65, I have rights that I didn't have before I was 65. There are all these different – there are rights for veterans. You know, you're, not, you're not always in, in the military, you know? And so there are different areas where – a reasonable person will – a rational person will recognize – That's the part. That it's, there are – it's the human thing. You recognize that there are human rights for different groups Unalienable. Of yes. It unalienable. says somewhere fairly right. important. Even, even if it's only unalienable for 18 years until you become an adult, then you have adult human rights. That's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. And the point of, of saying that people have unalienable rights is the idea that just because you're in the minority, in the majority, doesn't mean you can go around taking away other people's rights. Absolutely. That's the point Absolutely. of civil rights. I, I just, Again, it, it, just it gets back never... to those two crazy threads that I always see running through these homophobic arguments. And one of them is that if we can, if society condones, and I'm using air quotes, homosexual behavior, it feels so good everyone will start doing it and it will be, quote, the end of civilization. Orson Scott Card has said he believes gay marriage will be the end of civilization, that if we condone it. And that what that implies is that everyone will suddenly get gay married and they will stop reproducing, which, you know. Is that really what they believe? I just, that's... That's so insane. It Gay people make, have children, and we the world has so much, un, so many unwanted children out there. You know, the idea that it, it goes to this fundamental idea of that a person's worth is solely connected to their role in the reproductive cycle. Right. You know, and it takes a very fundamentalist view of what reproduction is. It discounts surrogacy and all the other medical things that we've. It treats reproduction as if it's this mysterious thing we haven't figured out yet. When really, on a biological level, we have figured it. out. Out. We can do it in a lab, I'm sorry to say. So it's kind of it, – it is a twisted um, logic that I can't really – it's like being blindsided with a handful of pebbles thrown in your face whenever you're – maybe that's just my experience of it. Well, if you watch them, they're like step by step by step getting more extreme and more extreme and more extreme, they figure, okay, the, the arguments that we made against this last year aren't working. Right. So we have to take another step backwards and another step backwards. And it's it's reaching the point where... It's like desperation. And desperation, panic, because they see that a certain percentage of the American public are not going in As the in direction that, that, that they want everybody to go in. Yeah. So there, there's now and more and more and more an issue of their credibility because they're coming up with these more and more and more extreme things. Like, for example, Ralph Reed and his argument the other day that uh, to do the right thing for undocumented uh, alien people in the country – is against the Bible. Oh, for God's sake. Now, come on. I've read the Bible. Where in the Bible does it say that? I, you know, you I... Know? And, and so the Bible, more and more and more, again, the extreme is they're keep trying to make these arguments and say that it's all based on the Bible when it's really just based in their extreme panic need to make another step and hope that they will come up with some kind of argument that's going to convince people. I always want to ask the Ralph Reeds of the world, when was your last live sacrifice? Because that's in there. Right. And 
all of the other rules and regulations, are you following them? Did you leave 10% mm -hmm. of your crop in the fields? Did you, you know, are you doing the things that the book, because you don't just get to pick the one rule right. and enforce that one and ignore all the other ones you don't want to. If, if you're, you're going really to take get, a fundamentalist view of the really Bible. If you're going right, to use exactly. that as your rule book, then right. you have to be following all the rules. And if you're not, then shut the hell up about it, because I don't want to hear about it. If you don't want to follow the rules, why should I? Sure, exactly, exactly. It's an old book. We have a, a, a listener on the Facebook page is raising the point in regards to Superman. Doesn't Superman fight for human rights for each issue? This is an outrage to give him the opposite job. Well, that's what I wonder about is I wonder where DC Comics is going with this <clears throat> because they've tried to make the argument that the personal views of the writer shouldn't matter. And, and I think I, that's a reasonable I, I think, point. I, I think just, that's a good point. And I think the minute you take a board position on the National Organization for Marriage, they stop being personal views. Like I wouldn't because I feel I've been mm -hmm. so public and because I've mm -hmm. contributed to gay causes. I wouldn't consider my views on gay marriage to be personal. I would say I think activist is a title I wouldn't necessarily give myself mm -hmm. because it's, I think it's an honor. And I think we too often call people activists in this day and age. But I've been very public. And, and I see his behavior as having been just as public. And I would call him an anti-gay activist. I'd call anybody sure. who's worked for the National Organization of Marriage an anti-gay activist. And so a different question needs to be posed to DC Comics. It's why have you hired a public anti-gay activist to write Superman? Yeah, I, I think that, that, I mean, that is a reasonable point. But on the other hand, how can the personal views of that person not color how he's going to tell the story. Right. And I so I, I think it's mine. getting shaded now. They want to shade Superman in a different direction than he's been shaded before. Is that really the and conscious decision of DC? I mean, I think that's... I don't know, but but, but, but I, that's what, you know... I'm not I've, as familiar with his writing. Is, does it shade his other work? Well, I've had a lot, a lot of response on Facebook to my various postings about this, and people say, you can't really tell this from his other writings. His more recent nonfiction writings, his essays, are where he... He has really espoused these views. He's written for a lot of conservative websites. Right. Uh -huh. He really does believe that this will be the end of civilization, as I've said, the quotes that we've quoted earlier in the broadcast. Um, Ender's Game, his classic novel, apparently doesn't have a trace of homophobia in it that anybody picked up on before mm -hmm. this really became an issue around his career. One novel, somebody said, was so homophobic, I'm sorry, so homoerotic, they assumed he was gay, Orson Scott Card. So, yeah, it's, it seems to be a complicated, evolving issue if you look at it just from the perspective of his published works. But I should note here, the other thing people have said is that DC Comics overall has done a lot of risky, progressive things with their other superhero mm -hmm. characters. And people view this as sort of out of context for them, if mm -hmm. that is the agenda. Well, you know, I'm not sitting in their boardroom. I'm not sitting in their 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 meeting room. So I personally don't know what they're doing. I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Right. Uh, because there are people already who are very upset with them yeah. and have said they're not going to read the comic books anymore. So they're going to have to, whatever their real intentions are, they're going to have to deal with the marketplace issues of where people are going to spend their money. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see where they go with this. And, and I think that's and, happening in a lot and, of different facets of society. Uh, that's very true. And, you know, to make a point, I mean, they do have a right to do with their comic books. Absolutely. Uh, they, if they're going to jump off the edge of the cliff, uh, if that's what it's going to be, they have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. And if not, not.
you know, in the same token, I have my little publishing company. I have a right to do with it whatever I do with it. Sure. You know? Absolutely. Uh, as long as I don't go out and kill people with it, you know, we have to draw the line there. Yeah, that's and, uh, Other than that, I have a right to publish what, what I publish. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. It's the hard part of these kinds of issues. Like, I mm -hmm. don't want to... Like, I always feel like if you believe... If you don't believe in gay marriage, then don't marry somebody of the same sex. Mm -hmm. Like... Why do you care what I do? That's that's the part that I, I don't get, but I don't want to stop them. But at the same time, with something this public, with something this visible, it's you you don't want to restrict DC Comics, as you say. It is their publishing company. Sure. And they can do what they want, but the audience is going to respond accordingly. Carl Rove raised $100 million to get his candidates elected, and none of them were because the marketplace is moving away from what he's trying to sell them. And mm -hmm. I think that's the issue, the, the reality, the market reality that you're talking about that, that DC will face mm -hmm. that may make the decision for them. Yes. I, I'm sorry. We've said the word marketplace so many times. I want to use it to circle back to some more personal questions that we were discussing earlier. There's now a huge market for uh, what's called M slash M romance out there. A lot of it is written by women. It's written by lesbian women. It's mm -hmm. written by bi women. It's written by straight women. Was there ever a moment for you early on where someone said, Patricia, you're going to write a gay love story about two long-distance runners, and, and are you crazy? Like, was, was that ever introduced as a concern? Because that's something that would probably be said to a writer even today if they were shooting to write a book that they wanted to be, you know, a bestseller, which right. not everybody shoots for, but... Well, Chris, that's, that's a great question. And bear in mind, I was in the closet, so there wasn't anybody to say this to me because nobody but me had any idea what was going on with me. And I came to it kind of step by step through this whole world of long-distance running and being involved in sports politics. And there was the moment, like I said earlier, that, my God, what a story there is here. Somebody's got to write this story. And it started out originally being a story about a lesbian coach and her female runner. Oh, interesting. Because, after all, I was woman runner. and I Write about what you know. Write about what, you know, being out there on the road running marathons and, and having the physical experience of, you know, that I was able to translate in, into the story. And after writing two or three chapters, I began to realize, all, again, all by myself, because I was just alone with this project, uh, that the story wasn't working because there were no women track coaches at the time. Uh -huh. Nobody was going to believe the story. And I wanted it to have a real nonfiction ring to it. I wanted it to read like the, a real-life Harlan Brown had sat down some years after the fact when he was finally able to deal with it and sat down to the typewriter, no computers yet, and tell his story to be published as a book. And I thought, well, I, I guess I better write the story about men. And so wow. it was simply a decision that I made about the story and how it worked and that didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. Because to me, this whole politically correct question of that only women should write about women and only men should write about men is kind of nonsensical. Right, right. right. Because writers write about everything. Life. 
You write about life, and, and, and we have to write now and then about things that we haven't necessarily personally experienced, but that's what we have imagination for. I have to tell Duh. you. It's I know, point. and I've had this experience recently. I was aware of this exploding genre of male, male romance being written by women, and I had in my head dismissed it and thought, what could they possibly know about what I get up to? You know, blah, 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 blah. And I began to read it, largely in part because Amazon makes it so easy to obtain now. It was mm-hmm. The gay bookstores were closing. It was hard yeah. to get. And and I mean to tell you, these women are blowing my doors off and my drawers off. To be frank, I mean, it is, and <laughs> That's it is the point. The work is oriented in a direction like as the front runner was. It is you are being given fully realized complex gay characters in environments where you're not used to seeing them. A lot of the work. Um, very much like Say Uncle was uh, also as well. But a lot of the books that I had been exposed to, the gay books, when I first came out, were um, – they were stories of living in gay ghettos. They were stories of Chelsea Manhattan. They were they were great books. I don't mean to dismiss them. But they were of a very certain perspective. Right. And these romance novels are about, you know, Marines. And, they're ev- and we're everywhere in these books. And, and, the, and the sexual details are pretty explicit and, and feel very authentic and accurate to me. And I it completely changed my mind. And there are writers like Harper. Fox and K.A. Mitchell and Heidi Cullinan. I'm I'm eating up their stuff. But, you know, it is. It gives credence to what you're saying, that it's a nonsensical divide. It is. You know? And to, to the complete surprise for me came when the book was out and I found that I was controversial hmm. in the LGBT community. Because you'd written about men. And, and here I had made what I thought was a sensible, creative decision for the story to, you know, have some sense of reality around it. And I found that I had broken a rule wow. that I didn't even know existed, which was that only gay men should write about and <laughs> lesbians should write about and never the twain shall meet. And it was even all divided up into categories of gay male literature and lesbian literature. And we won't even mention the bisexuals right. somehow down the middle there the somewhere. Rules. And honestly, I was I was controversial and I was not very popular with a lot of people. Wow. And there were people who spit in my face, and it was it was pretty strange Hard for me. Literally spit yeah. in your face. Yeah. Literally spit and, in your and, face. Oh, it was like from the community. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I was oh. more controversial in the community than I was outside of it. It, it is, was, it is well, a strange experience. Was it from? Was this coming from gay women? You betrayed us by writing about uh, them, or was it? it I mean, it was from both genders. Wow. Really. wow. There were men who said, kind of like, had the attitude that I should. I, I said I had no idea. I had to ask permission. Wow. To write about anything. This is my, I got my story with yeah. say uncle about yeah. the 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 absence of gay sex. I didn't yeah. make. He wasn't in love with his nephew, and he didn't. You know, like there there were people who were hostile about mm. that. Wow. I, I got. I I I understand, but. That yeah. Nothing to that degree. That's... It really didn't smooth out for me until, oh, I'd say late in the 80s. Wow. Wow. And uh, that, that, that by then enough people had read the book and it had been talked about enough. And but then it was a classic. And, and, and it certainly got a lot of wonderful reviews and it went into other languages and the whole thing of going around the world started. And finally it's, it kind of stopped. Hmm. But it was, it was a strange wow. time to, to live through. So you know? we have to ask you. Before we run out of time, the movie. 
Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to know oh, no, the about movie. the Front Every, Runner movie. Everybody send us $10 I mean, and I'm we'll sure try and make this movie. After yeah. Brokeback Mountain finally made it to yeah. screen, which had been in development for, I think, a much shorter period of time, right. but what seemed like a very long period of time mm. to people, I'm sure you were deluged with people saying, now is it the Front Runner's right. turn? Exactly. Well, yeah. and, and people had, and in fact, uh, weeks don't go by on Facebook that I don't get. Uh, messages. It, is, know, it amazes what, what about me the movie? that that film has not been made. It, it just it, amazes what, me. One of the problems has been that so many people who were interested in the film wanted to do a low-budget film. Mm. And I, I, I don't want to see it made. It's a low-budget film. I see. Right, right. And the whole, to me, the dimension of the Olympic Games, the gay kid on the podium with the gold medal around his neck, right. I mean, that you have to have that dimension for that to be there, and that's going to cost money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. when when you look at what they spent to make Invictus, which is a similar film where you've got a lot of big stadium scenes, mm-hmm. that kind of story, uh, you're going to need uh, computer generated Im- imagery. A very good movie. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah, yeah. really studied really it did. because of how it parallels in certain ways. I wouldn't have thought of it, but you're right. It and is a really good you, comparison. You've, you've really got to spend the minimum amount of money for it to seem real. To just to have the stadium scenes yeah. and the feeling the of the crowd reacting of and it, so forth, if you and, will. and it's uh, so I've been holding out for the right people, the right attitude, the right amount of money, and no, it doesn't have to be two hundred million dollars. Oh well, but yeah. there were people who said, "Oh, I can make the front runner for eight million dollars." I said, "No, I don't think you can." Not that mm-hmm. front runner. So, um, but you know, I'm very optimistic. I think enough time has gone by now. We've had milk. We've had Brokeback Mountain. And um, I, I, I think that sometime in the next year, the time has I'm come. hopefully the time has come when the right people that are the right fit for the project are uh, going to appear. And do you think cable would reduce that scope you're talking about too much? No. Like HBO or Showtime? Or, oh, no. I don't, I don't think so. I think HBO has done some wonderful yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely, Absolutely. wonderful. Really so I'm a huge fan for this. Yeah. of what yeah. they do. And if anything, they could because you have the sequels. The story goes right. on, and nobody had really written about a gay family and the evolution of a GLBT family with mm-hmm. the generations right. and the children and the straight relatives sure. and so forth. And it's a good So bet. you can expand anybody that wanted to do the whole series and carry it on through 20 years. Do the sort of the Downton Abbey. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You buy I, I would love to see that. Yeah. I'm such a fan of that series. And, but to follow, is to, 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 yeah. to see this family, you know, dealing with the whole gradual breakup of traditionalism and, yes. and not only upstairs, but downstairs. Absolutely. And, and there's, it's a masterful job. Excellent. It's a masterful job. Julian Fellows is a genius. Absolutely. Really, well, let's remind everyone, though, too, that the Front Runner ebook edition is now. Available. Yes. We have a link, which is through our affiliate program, on our site at thedinnerpartyshow.com. So it's in our main frame. Very so nice. five of you out there it's out, it's don't out have in, a copy. In, it's out in Kindle, selling very well. Uh, and so I might as well mention that my first novel, which is what I was doing before I ever uh, wrote a GLBT-themed story, uh, The Last Centennial, mm. which was first published in 1971, uh, it's going to be back in print in a few days. Excellent. Excellent. And I will announce it on Facebook when, when the link is up so that people can go and buy it. So be because sure there's a lot in the Facebook. book. Yeah. There's a lot in the book that kind of presages where 
I went with with the front runner, which was actually my second novel. I didn't Absolutely. realize that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. One, our, our listener, Philip Cohen, wants to know when you actually first started writing and decided to pursue it as a career. I was 10 years old. Wow. Uh, I was at the a woman who the, knows the, what the, she the, wants. The, the typewriter in the ranch office, which had a great big <laughs> wide carriage on it for doing five generation pedigrees of Herford cattle, and I'm a hunting peck typing. Very my, cool. Uh, very bookish family, very educated family. Love books. I grew up with books, and by the time I was ten, I wanted to write books of my own. Very wow. cool. No. Very cool. Thank well, God you did. Thank God you did. We're going to say goodbye to you now, but we're going to ask you to stay so we can snap a picture with you after the after Absolutely. we go on here. Come back again. And, and I again. have to say, I there are a lot of good reasons to do this show, but the joyful look on Eric Shawquin's face when you took that seat across from him tonight is worth it. It's worth <laughs> doing the whole show, worth the soundproofing and the decorating and the web wow. marketing and all that stuff. It's been a joy to be here with two other writers who have also been out there on the battlefield yeah. with your own creative decisions and so forth and wow. here's my applause to both of you thank and best you. of luck with your new books yours chris and yours eric and good luck and and uh, i would love to do this again soon with you we'll right. have you back as again soon as and again i would love it thank you thank, thank you for thank you that. that's Absolutely. a real honor uh good night patricia and we'll be back shortly here at the dinner party show Coming soon to the Dinner Party Show. Soon being whenever we start to run out of ideas for new sketches. It's a, a celebration, celebration of reverb. Featuring every voice alteration we could find on our computer software. Like this one. Don't I sound crazy? Or this one. Don't I sound godlike and fearsome? And if you thought we were just going to stop at Reverb, strap yourself in for our PA Announcer Series featuring Incomprehensible Subway Announcement. The next D-Train will be here in approximately 15 minutes. That's 15 minutes for the next D-Train. Or Bitchy Nurse in a Hospital. Being assisted in the nurse's station, staff, homeless patient requesting a beer for the 20th time. Help, please. Because in the age of auto-tune, Computerized sound effects are what you turn to when you run out of inspiration. Or clever lyrics. And who can be clever all the time, right, Eric? Speak, Speak for, for yourself, Miss B. You wrote this sketch. A celebration of reverb. It's how to get your audience to listen when you can't figure out what Jordan Ampersand did that week. Or you just can't come up with another commercial bashing the NRA. A celebration of Reverb!
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. That's Eric Sharquin has dried his eyes and put his composure back together. Yeah, Patricia came by and his made me cry. Idol made him cry tonight on the Dinner Party Show. So we need to talk about what's happening next week. Oh my God, we're so excited. We're so excited. And it turns out that Jordan isn't a complete waste of space after all. He's not. He has actually secured us an amazing invitation for Oscar night. Oh. Can we say where we're going? I think we should. Jordan Ampersand, critic at large for the Dinner Party Show, has got us invites to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Oh my God. And so yes. we're going to, that we will have guest hosts in next week. Jordan and Breck will be sitting in for us and we will live tweet from the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Yes. So we're giving the studio to Jordan and Breck and we will be out in the center of Oscar glamour in the middle of West Hollywood. And on we'll Oscar phone night. back in with our live reports. Absolutely. From I, the most amazing, I, I, I have so to say. So are you going to be nicer to Jordan Ampersand now? Well, I certainly am going to, it's going to be harder to be mean to him. How okay. about that? Okay. I think he did this deliberately because he knows how you feel about him. But anyway, um, if that's the incentive, who cares? We're going Whatever. to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Then I'll be really mean to him. Who knows what he'll do? <laughs> he'll get us invited he'll to the get Oscars. get us to the Oscars. Next year, the President's Ball. That would be great. Courtesy of Jordan Ampersand. Well, this has been one of our favorite shows of the Dinner Party Show. Oh, my show. God. So amazing. Please join us next week at the usual time, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, for our Oscar special featuring Jordan Ampersand and Breck Artery. Don't forget to download our mobile app so you can listen to us live on the go. We have them for Apple and Android devices. And subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, it's even if you don't free. listen to us that way, because it's a good rating system for the types of ventures that we're doing here. We appreciate it. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And this has been another great episode of The Dinner Party Show. Thanks for listening in. Thank you. I'd be to a marvelous party.